Please do turn with me this evening to Luke's Gospel, chapter 16, and our text is found in verse 26. Luke 16 and verse 26. And beside all this, between us and you there is a great gulf fixed. My title tonight is a somewhat frightening title. Too late to repent. There is a great gulf fixed, said the Lord Jesus, in this parable between heaven and hell, and hell and heaven, there is a great gulf fixed. And because it's fixed, once we are in heaven or hell, and our eternal destiny is realized, there will be no movement. There will be no transport. There will be no changing places, no second chances. That great, enormous gulf, far wider than the Grand Canyon, it is fixed. There is no passing from the one to the other. Heaven is a real place. It's where God is, in his presence, where there is light and eternal joy forevermore. And in the same way, hell is also a real place, a place of torment, a place where every emblem, every indication of God and his presence is removed. There will be no blessing in hell, no happiness. And the picture of torment and flames is given to us to make us realize how, how real hell will be. For many, they won't realize the reality of hell until they're there, away from God. Well, I spoke on this parable, I looked it up this week, some nearly four years ago, and I focused on that occasion on the final verse. My title was, being unpersuadable. We shall look at it briefly later, but there is those who even if a ghost, even if one from the dead were to appear, they wouldn't be persuaded. Their hearts and their minds are stubbornly against God and his word, there is nothing that will persuade them. I pray tonight that you're not like that, and that you will hear the voice of God speaking gently with your heart. Even if one came back from the dead, and I don't suppose this will happen to you, would you be persuaded? Well, in the parable the Lord Jesus told, these five brothers of the rich man, they were unpersuadable. Well, this passage has been on my heart this week for two reasons. One of the brothers here was with me on Tuesday morning and we went into the prison. There were seven men this week 
And six of them are with us the week before. There was nine that week, but one man at the end we ask, is there anything specific you would like us to pray for you about? And usually the men say something like this, pray for my family, my daughter, my son. That's very understandable. Or pray for the court case that's coming up next week for my hearing that I might be released or no longer on remand. That's the normal answer that we get. But once the other six men had spoken, one man said this. He said, please pray for my cellmate. I thought, well, that's a very good thing to pray for. My cellmate that took his own life four weeks ago. Well, that's a difficult thing to respond to. I knew the answer, but I thought I want to be gracious, so I said that must be very difficult for you to have known that so close by in your own cell, something which in prisons in the UK and across the world is very common. But I said I'm sorry to say that the word of God is very clear. When a person dies, that's the end of their spiritual opportunity. That's the end of the opportunity for them to come to repentance. And so I'm sorry, I can't pray for that man. I'll pray for his family, his friends, and will certainly pray for you. But for that man, that's the end. Not the end of consciousness, not the end for his soul, but the end for his spiritual opportunity. Well, there was another reason, and I'm sure some of you have thought of this too. We've thought much this week, many of us, of a 17-year-old who from last Friday until this Friday, he waited for the end of his life and his family waited around his bed. A family that we have so many connections to in so many ways and they were given an answer to their prayer and that his life was extended for those seven days. Seven days that they could speak to him. We don't know but we believe there was some consciousness during that time that only needs a moment Surely God can speak in just one moment. And during those seven days, I think it was nearly every evening, the family organized a prayer meeting. I'm sure they only expected 10, 20 relatives. But maybe the first night there was something like 100. And then 200, 250. And then Friday evening, 275 devices, maybe more, maybe 500 were listening. Why? Because when somebody's life hangs on a thread, it makes us think like few other things. We prayed, of course, for the family. We prayed for the young rugby player's life that the Lord would grant 
what didn't seem to be possible. And night after night, the Lord answered that prayer and gave a little further life. And the Lord gave opportunity. The family have some reasons for hope. We don't know what goes on within the soul. Maybe, as one pastor said, the password to eternal life was remembered within the moments of consciousness. This was a young lad that grew up in Sunday school, in chapel, week after week, that password. God be merciful to me, a sinner. Surely that would be sufficient. All that's needed is to beg for forgiveness. And so I turn to this parable because it gives us some very interesting and important insights. Just look at the contrast as we go through some of the verses and then I want to jump straight to insights and lessons. But this is a remarkable parable that the Lord Jesus told. If you have in your mind a cross, the literature at the time used this device called chiastic, a contrast between extremes that are reversed. Let me show you how it works. There was a certain rich man, verse 20, and there was a beggar, the very opposite. The rich man lives in luxury, clothed in purple, fine linen. The poor man had nothing. He was clothed in sores. The Lord Jesus is making us think. He's using total extremes. It's a parable. We mustn't take everything absolutely literally. It's a story to make us to see things to shock us, to make us stop in our tracks. He fared sumptuously caviar, seven courses for his meals in the evening. We can read in a bit of detail. And the poor man was carried and laid at his gate. And he would have had crumbs, breadcrumbs, falling off the rich man's table. The one man had such luxury. The other man had his sores licked. Oh, what a contrast. One man lives in a gated village all for himself and his family, but the very same man is locked outside the gates of heaven, and there's no entry in for him, because it's too late, because he hadn't repented. A gated village of splendor and luxury and the man that was locked out of the gate is the man that's let into heaven because he had said the password, because he knew the one who kept the rich man out 
One man experienced hell on earth, literally evil, not probably because of his own misdemeanors. Maybe he was an unfortunate man. There was many in those days, neglected, not cared for other than by a few relatives that laid him and carried him at the gates of the rich man. Hell on earth. The rich man would know hell after death. One man has experienced luxury, splendor, but the poor man dwells in sapphire-paved courts in heaven because he's been let in, because he has a saviour, because he's been washed and cleansed and his sin is no longer a barrier between him and God. But the rich man, he didn't much care for his sin. He didn't think he'd ever committed any. What was this man's sin? Well, we can guess, we can see the context. If you look back at verse 14, the Lord Jesus is never illogical. He always flows one argument into the other. It says, and the Pharisees also. And he speaks to them who were covetous. It's not a coincidence that he then tells a parable about a rich man. The Pharisees also who were covetous heard all these things and they derided him, they mocked him, they laughed at the Lord Jesus. And the Lord Jesus responds. And he tells a parable about one rich man. He's speaking to them. He's speaking confrontationally, but gently. Can we bring this up to date? Somebody who doesn't feel their need of a saviour. Somebody who thinks they're decent. They dress properly in purple linen and fine clothes. A three-piece suit. Somebody that has an extension on their house. They've got this, that, the other. You name it. And they desire yet more. Their sin can't be seen, it's in the heart. The sin of this rich man is clearly covetousness. He desired more and more and more, and he wouldn't give to the poor man who he passed each time he went into his gated village. What a set of contrasts. The man who had everything gave nothing to the man who needed it most. And the man who had nothing had eternal riches, immeasurable, uncountable, that he had none of in this life to put his hands upon, begging daily. Well, let's come to the insights. I want to open the curtain as it were, I think this is what the Lord Jesus intended. We see what's beyond the grave and in some ways we wonder, don't we? We ask all those questions. What will be in heaven? Will it be like this? What's hell like? 
Will my loved ones be in heaven or hell? We ask all the questions, and some of them we don't know the answers. But I'm sure this parable was intended to give us some insights and lessons. Let me give you just five tonight, as we have a short time. Let's roll back the curtain and see something of the world which is beyond the grave. Notice before we begin the five lessons, the poor man, he didn't have a grave. He didn't have a funeral. He didn't have a burial. The rich man did. It doesn't matter where you're buried. What matters is whether you go to be with the Lord or not. So here's the first lesson. I go down to verse 31. And the lesson is this. Do you know, for what lies beyond the grave, we have all the evidence for God and for truth that we possibly need. The Lord describes it like this. Moses, the law. The laws of God written on every heart, written upon your own heart, in your conscience. You don't need a ghost to come back from the dead. You don't need a miracle to make you believe. You don't need a prophet to come and appear and tell you the future. You have it all. It's in the written word of God. You know God's word, you know enough of it. You know from what your conscience says what's right and wrong, and there are days that you feel your guilt. But so often you trample on your conscience. You tell it to be quiet. You say, if I keep going in this way, my conscience will be quieter. Sometimes somebody speaks and there's a Sunday school lesson, children, and you think, you think your teacher's speaking directly to you. They're not, but that's the Holy Spirit putting a finger on your sin, telling you what you've done this week, telling you that you need a saviour. Because, you know, all the evidence that you need, this is what Christ teaches in the final verse. Everything that you need to be persuaded, it's there. You don't need more. You need to look at what you've been given. And you need your heart to be softened by the Holy Spirit so that you can see that you need a Savior before it's too late. If we don't turn to him, all the evidence that's mounted up in our life, it will be no good, because it will be too late. Well, let's look at a second lesson. What really counts? What really counts is, do you have a real relationship with God through Christ? That's what matters. Look at these two different men. They're both Jews. He's speaking to Pharisees. The Lord Jesus likens the two in the parable to people just like them. 
And he likens it to their relationship with Abraham. Everybody looks up to Abraham, the father of the faith, the one that they respected, the one who did so much for the nation. Even the rich man respected Abraham. But Abraham, in the parable, I don't think this will happen. In the parable, Abraham speaks to the rich man and he calls him son. Son in race, but not in grace. Son, remember in your lifetime, you had everything. You had all the luxury, you had all the good things, you had everything that this world could offer. But you didn't have what you needed most. You didn't have a relationship with Almighty God. Abraham says, I did. I knew the Lord. By faith I left all the idols behind. I left all that I could see. And I went out. And I journeyed by faith. But rich man, you've had your opportunity. You didn't have a relationship with me. What you desired was in your heart. You desired more and more and more. And your house got bigger. And your swimming pool deeper. And your luxuries knew no end. But now it's too late. You've had all that you coveted. But you didn't have what you needed. You didn't have a relationship with Almighty God. I did, says Abraham, as it were. I did, I knew him by faith. We have all the evidence we need. A relationship with God is what really counts. But then thirdly, death is the end. It's not the end, but it is the end of spiritual opportunity. The clock has ticked for the last time. This is the hardest thing for us to take in. Let me spend a few moments on it. The parable teaches us, I think we can draw this from it, that after death we will have a very real consciousness. We will have a memory for everything we've done in life. It will come flooding back to us. There will be a memory for the lost. I think we can draw that from the parable. The rich man is so conscious. He remembers his five brothers. He remembers the name of Lazarus. And he thinks, little Lazarus, he'll be my servant now in hell. And he just needs to dip his finger to comfort me, to serve me. You see, he's got worldly concepts of who's important and who's small and insignificant. He's got some understanding of who Lazarus was, but not who Lazarus is. Oh yes, there's a consciousness after death. I read something this week. It 
was very interesting. It was a secular scientist, and the story says this. It wasn't a story. They think it's real. In the moments before somebody dies, they think there is a lot of evidence that there's a rush of blood to the brain, and there's a sudden awareness of life before we breathe our last breath. I don't know whether that's true, but it sounds quite sensible. Sometimes you hear the words of people that have just about to breathe their final breath, and they say something so vivid, so clear. There's a consciousness that's vivid just before death, maybe. But here there's a consciousness after death, when it's too late. Do you know many people today, they believe in something called annihilation. They believe that death is the end, not just of spiritual opportunity, but the end of everything. And if you have no God in your life, and we live in a world where many people say there is no God, it's not surprising that people also believe in annihilation because they don't want there to be a God. And they don't want there to be consciousness after death. They want death to be the end. And they want no consequences for the way they've lived. But the rich man, he teaches us this, that death, it's not the end. It's only the end of our journey and the spiritual opportunity. And after death, it is appointed unto man once to die and then the judgment. There is an accountability. There is an accounting day. We will stand before Christ and the books will be opened. You've done this and this. And you had those dirty thoughts. And you stole your life from me. The life that should have been lived for me. You lived for yourself in luxury. And you had no thought for your sin. And you didn't repent when you had the opportunity. And you thought you wouldn't be accountable, but you are. Where is your Savior? You have none. Away from me. I never knew you. Well, fourthly, we can learn from this parable that there will be a great reversal. A reversal that the man didn't expect. Even in hell, he thought that what was familiar to him would carry on. He thought that he could order Lazarus around. He thought that there was something that he could plead. Like that man who came to the Lord Jesus, the Lord Jesus said to him, Thou fool, this night... Thy soul shall be required of thee then. Who shall those things be which thou hast provided? So is he that lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. Are you rich in your bank account? 
Are you rich with all the things in your bedroom? But you're not rich towards God. Beyond the grave, everything that you have in this life that you can see and that you can hold and that you can treasure that's physical, it will be gone. This man was filthy rich, and yet he wanted more. But the man who had nothing had everything that was valuable because he had heart religion. In his heart, he knew the Lord. In his heart, he'd made peace with God. In his heart, he held on to a Savior who couldn't be seen, whilst the rich man held on to his money so tight. He was more tight-fisted than any Scotsman. He wouldn't give a pound to the one who needed it. Beyond the grave, a great reversal. But let's come to our text finally. A fifth insight tonight. These words, they, they go round and round in my mind. Three words. Great gulf fixed. Great. The distance in the parable doesn't seem to be very far. It's only a parable. They can hear voices. They can have a conversation. I don't think that will happen. The gulf is so wide because my sins have separated from me from God. The only way it can be bridged is in life. By Christ, it is indeed great. You can't jump. You can't get the tube. You can't fly. It's great. So great are your sins that it's impossible for you to travel between. And that gulf is fixed. It's impossible. Do you know, I think this man in his life he was probably a good negotiator. He saw something and he negotiated, you know, like the people that have got everything and they go to the car dealership and they're not prepared to pay the price. They negotiate down, down, down. And such is this man. He thought he could blag his way out of hell. He could negotiate himself from hell to heaven. That's what he'd done in his life. And now he thinks he can just say the right thing. But it's too late. Too late. He didn't repent. The destinations are fixed, immovable. There won't be any movement between the two. We've seen in the war in Ukraine that prisoners of war have been swapped. 200 there, here, 250 there. But there won't be any movement between heaven and hell. There won't be any swaps. There won't be any negotiation. It will be too late. If this week has taught us anything, 
Make your peace with God tonight. Don't leave it one more day. Today is the day. Hear his voice. Go to bed tonight. Plead with him. While you have consciousness in this life, seek a saviour. He's so ready to hear. He's so easy to be entreated. All that call upon him, he will hear. He turns none away. Call upon him while he may be found. Ask him to hear your voice. Plead for mercy. Plead for forgiveness. Call upon him tonight. He will hear you. Call out by faith, and he will be found. This man thought he could negotiate, but there's no negotiation. After the grave, come to him tonight. Call out for love and mercy, and he will hear. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we come to a Saviour who is so willing, so ready to hear. He died with two outstretched arms to show us the arms of love and mercy and tenderness. And he speaks words to all. Forgive them, for they know not what they do. And yet to one who felt his need, he said today, Thou wilt be with me in paradise. Lord, while there is time, call many tonight and hear their voice and save them from their sin. Cleanse and wash them, we pray tonight, so that we would have peace with God a place in heaven, and our eternity would be fixed in the right place. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.